Amen. You may have a seat. And while you grab your seat, you want to reach for your copy of the scriptures. And we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 this morning. Well, all across America, people are gathering this morning. They've been looking forward to today all week. They've talked about today. They've read articles in preparation for today. They've listened to podcasts. Many have engaged with coworkers all week. Looking forward to today, some even got in some hot debates. And as Sunday draws closer, there's more of an anticipation, more of an eagerness, because they just want to be prepared for today. And so they do everything to get ready. Maybe like you, they get their clothes laid out, ironed. They make sure they have a full tank of gas. They set their alarm, go to bed early, wake up early, so they can arrive early. America is full of devoted worshipers. And it doesn't matter the weather, it doesn't matter the traffic conditions, even if people are feeling under the weather, they'll make sure they get some vitamins in, eat that chicken noodle soup, do what it takes to make sure they come and worship. You know that I'm not talking about church. I'm talking about America's idol, sports. For some, it's the god of the pigskin, For some, it's the greens on the golf course. There's actually a plethora of gods, whether it's basketball, volleyball, soccer, surfing, gaming, entertainment. There's a number of things that people devote themselves to and offer up themselves in worship. Let me ask you this question as we go to the Word this morning. What do we communicate about the greatness of God when we're devoted to our gods with a little g. How do we show forth his greatness and his grandeur and his majesty when we make sacrifices and meticulously order our lives around our little gods? The question for us this morning, the question for you, is what are you prioritizing? What do you spend the majority of your time and energy praising? And I think the biggest question is, are you treating, are you approaching God? Are you worshiping God the way that he rightly deserves? You see, my fear in America is that we've completely lost this high view of God. Even in the church, There's this diminishing regard for the holiness of God and the honor of God. Commitment has been replaced with convenience. Adoration replaced with apathy. God and gathering together with God's people doesn't seem to be the priority of many so-called Christians. And here's a major reason why. Because countless people have been trained, they've been instructed, it's been modeled for them to actually treat God irreverently, 
thoughtlessly with a half-hearted, pitiful worship. And for many, this was modeled for them when they were young, as parents often sacrifice their children on the altar of sports and entertainment, extracurricular activities. And so people grow up having this low regard for church because that's what was modeled for them. They don't have an Isaiah 6 vision of holy, holy, holy. Instead, they have this this version of God and version of church, much like I saw on YouTube this week. Curiosity got me, and so I clicked on these stormtroopers that were dancing. But it wasn't the Jabberwockies, and it wasn't a, a music video. It was a church service. And so you have these stormtroopers who are getting down to a little bit of Michael Jackson and doing the crutch, the crutch grab and everything like that. Listening to Beyonce, the mashup, a little gangman style at a church service. People weren't sitting in pews. They had classic cars to make it like a drive-in movie theater. The pastor there at a church in Florida said this, we want our church services to be fun. We want them to be an immersive experience. And he said, if you're into traditional church, you won't like us very much because here we love to have fun. one of the ways they do that is with their dance team, the church dance team. Now, if our kids grow up in a church like this, what do you think, what do you expect is going to happen as they get older? What these kinds of church services communicate is simply this, is God's not good enough. The preaching of the word is not good enough. We need to be entertained. We need to have lights and shows and a big circus. We need something impressive. We need something elaborate. Well, this morning we come to a passage of Scripture that addresses how we should think and how we should treat our holy God. And the opening verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is all about that. How do we properly approach this holy God? So hopefully you have Ecclesiastes chapter 5 opened. Let's read God's word. Solomon writes, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know how they are doing evil. Do not be hasty with your mouth or impulsive in your hearts to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven, but you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through abundant endeavors and the voice of a fool through abundant words. When you make a vow to God, do not be laid and painted, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you owe. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not allow your mouth to cause your flesh to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and wreak destruction on the work of your hands? For in many dreams and vanities are many words. Rather, fear God. Let's pray. O Lord, you are holy and pure 
and righteous, and we are not. And so if we are going to respond with faith and gratitude and obedience, you need to do the work through your Spirit, through your Word, in our hearts. And so, God, would you please do that for us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our main idea for our text this morning, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5 over the next couple of weeks, but today we're focused on verse 1. But as we look at verses 1 through 7, the preacher helps us see the correlation between our view of God and our view of worship. So a high view of God leads to what we'll say is worthy worship, whereas a low view of God leads to worthless worship. Again, a high view of God leads to worthy worship. A low view of God leads to worthless worship. Now, church, you know this, but it is certainly worth a reminder. How we worship is informed by whom we worship. Worship must be consumed with whom we worship. If your worship is only focused on how you feel, then your experience becomes the object of your worship. Listen, there are only two options. You are either going to worship the creator as he's revealed himself, or you're going to worship the creature, creation. Those are the only two categories. The Bible tells us that God seeks after worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. Which means that worship's actually not about you. It's not about your felt needs. It's not about empty religion and routine and rhetoric. Worship is not about entertainment. It's not about music. Worship is really not about you and it's not about me. You say, well, what is worship about? Well, worship is about God. It is a response to who he is. It's a response to his glory and his greatness. It's a response to his omnipotent power. It's a response to his absolute and total sovereignty over all things in the universe. It is a response to his holiness. Worship should always leave you and me with a profound and weighty awareness of God's utter and complete holiness. Worship is about God's grace And we've already sang about it this morning, but when you think about the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on your behalf and how you were freely justified, what does that mean to you? What does it produce in your hearts that you are now made holy, that God has now adopted you into his family? You are one of his forever. What does it mean that he's given you his own spirit And he's sealed you and strengthens you and sustains you and sanctifies you and spiritually gifts you to be a blessing to his bride, the church. What amazing grace. You see, when we consider who God is, we can't help but bow in humble adoration because our God is so great. Listen, if you are not floored by the grandeur of God, then it might be that you're just thinking too much about yourself when it comes to worship. You say, well, pastor, this is, uh, this is great, but hey, I'm here. Take it easy. Like, I'm, I'm at the worship service. And I'm 
thankful for that. I really am. I love seeing your faces, and it's encouraging to my own soul. But you know this, just showing up and sitting in the pew doesn't automatically produce the profound respect and admiration that God deserves. Right? He wants more than your presence. He wants your heart. He wants your reverence and the respect that he's owed to be mingled with joy and love and affection for him. That's the essence of true worship. And so as we just kind of parachute into Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we have to provide some context. So let's do that together. Ecclesiastes is a wonderful book, but sometimes a confusing book for many. Solomon, the author, he hammers this point over and over in Ecclesiastes. And in order to really understand chapter 5 and get our kind of theological and literary bearings, we, we have to understand the book as a whole. Ecclesiastes, along with the book of Job that we looked at and Proverbs and a few of the Psalms, they're identified as wisdom literature. That's the genre. Collectively, all these wisdom writings, what they're doing is they're helping answer the question, what does it mean to live well in a fallen world? How do we honor God, know God, in a fallen world? And so Job provides wisdom to understand suffering in life. Proverbs provides wisdom to understand a successful life. And Ecclesiastes provides wisdom to understand the significance of life. Ecclesiastes is a powerful book, both practically and theologically. And King Solomon's goal is to demonstrate in a very pragmatic and paradigmic way how a wise person can live a God-honoring life despite the sin that we see all around us. But the tone of the book is very unique. It almost reads like a pessimistic poetry. And so we see Solomon over and over again talk about life under the sun. He's called the Kohelet, which in Hebrew is the preacher. And he's contemplating the meaning and the purpose of life. And he looks back on his life as Solomon is older in age, and he evaluates the purpose. And he says, life is meaningless. But he doesn't just mean life is meaningless. He means life is meaningless apart from God. It is like a vapor. It is like a mist. You can't grasp it. It's here. It's gone. We can't fully understand it. Nothing makes sense apart from God. Solomon says, look, life will be empty apart from God. It'll be unsatisfying, unfulfilling, and even despairing. And so what does Solomon do in the first couple of chapters, chapters 1 and 2, and really throughout the whole book, he basically sets up these dominoes, and then he knocks them over with wisdom. Whether it's pleasure, accumulating great possessions, whether it's becoming learned, smart, educated, wise, whether it's working hard or focusing on vocation or career, all is meaningless the preacher says, apart from God. The preacher says that no matter which on-ramp you take, if it doesn't say God on the interstate, you're on the wrong road. You are headed down a road of destruction and disaster. And so Solomon wants to prevent that. and says, look, you don't want a life that is a failure. You don't want a life that is full of futility. You don't want a fruitless life. And so therefore, the conclusion of the book is, fear God 
and obey his commandments. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the preacher begins with a positive message in the book. He says that one of the great keys to experiencing satisfaction and meaning in life is to recognize and to embrace the idea that God is sovereign and providential over all. And so we read those famous lines, there is a time for this and there is a time for that, which is a way to help us understand that there is actually meaning under the sun when we consider that there is a God who is in heaven. And he's not just a God who's in heaven, but he's a God who's in heaven who actually condescends. Our transcendent God condescends and extends his mercy and his grace, and he kindly and lovingly rules over all creation. And then you get to chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes, and it's got a somber tone, and he begins to explore injustice and oppression in a fallen world. And the whole point is to help us understand that you cannot get satisfaction apart from God. This is the result. And so he dismantles idols one by one. Those good things that often become God things, They might seem like they could bring satisfaction, but they really can't. And Solomon has known this by way of experience. So he demonstrates in a very poetic form and systematically strips each idol of its perceived worth and uncovers the danger of investing all of our time and energy in the things that cannot ultimately satisfy you. So after you read chapters 1 through 4, you're kind of like, wow, this is a bummer of a book. It's a little depressing here. Life seems hopeless, but in chapter 5, there's a totally different tone. Look there at the text. Immediately what we observe is Solomon is no longer making observations. He's not saying, oh, I saw this, and I saw that, and I observed this. He goes from observations to making obligations. He's going to start commanding things here. See, he's not leaving it up to you and me to think about the implications under the sun. He's actually specifically telling us what to do and what not to do. The second major difference that we experience here in Ecclesiastes 5 is God is the centerpiece. Whereas he's not really mentioned in the first chapters, he's now mentioned six times in seven verses. All of this is pointing to the fact that there is a great distance between God, the Creator, and us, his creation. And the most theological statement of the passage is found there in verse 2, and it says, God is in heaven, and you are upon the earth. How far is that? You don't try to calculate. And all of this now is sandwiched with two commands. The first, in verse 1, Watch your steps. And the last, in verse 7, fear God. And that forms what we call an inclusio. Everything in between is how we are to worship God and what we don't do when we worship God. So that's all the introduction. Here's the outline. Three simple points. Watch how you walk. Watch how you listen. Watch how you talk. Watch how you walk. Watch how you listen. Watch how you talk. Guard your steps as you go. That's how he begins. This imperative is a warning. It's a warning for us to guard our steps as we approach God's house. Now, what does this mean to guard your steps? 
Throughout the Bible, walking is a metaphor for living. So where your body goes, it's because your feet take you. And so your feet are constantly taking you down a road of life. Scripture repeatedly encourages us to walk down the path of the righteous and not the wicked. You remember when we were in Psalm chapter 1, we learned about two people and two places and two paths. You're either righteous or wicked, you're either straight or crooked, and you're either going to heaven or hell. Anyone can say there's more options, but we know from the Bible there's only two. Jesus made this point very clear in the Sermon on the Mount when he said this in Matthew chapter 7. He said, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter it. For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So listen, if you're on the narrow path, if you're on the straight path, you better make sure you stay on it. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 10 has these instructions. Hear, my son, and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have instructed you in the way of wisdom. I've led you in the upright tracks. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded. And if you run, you will not stumble. Seize discipline. Do not let it go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of wicked men, and do not step into the way of evil men. Avoid it, verse 15 says, and do not pass by it. Stray from it and pass on. And Proverbs chapter 4 concludes with these words, Watch the track of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. And we see this all throughout Scripture. We are constantly called to check the condition of our hearts, to, to recalibrate if need be, if we're diverging from the path. Let me ask you this. Brother, sister, where are your feet taking you? Well, where is your mind these days? How are you spending your time? What road are you traveling on? What does your present walk say about the greatness and glory of God? Solomon says, guard your steps. Do it often. Do it regularly. Make it a habit to ensure that you are on the right path. So, am I honoring God? Am I choosing to spend my time in a way that is pleasing to Him? Am I watching something that is going to honor Him? Am I speaking in a way that brings Him glory? Am I striving to live for holiness, as he desires. Guard your steps in all of life. And listen, that is a good general principle, but Solomon has something very specific in mind, though. Look there at the text. He directs this imperative at our approach and our attitude toward God in worship. That's why he says, guard your steps as you go into the house of God. Now, the question is, well, what is the house of God? Well, simply, it's speaking of the temple. You say, well, Dom, how do we know that it's speaking of the temple? Well, verse 1 tells us that this is where people draw near to God. 
Verse 1 also says this is where sacrifices are made. Verse 2 says this is where God's presence is. Verse 4 says this is where vows are made, and we know vows were often made at the temple. Verse 6 says the messenger is there, and this is likely the temple messenger. Now, what we need to understand about the temple is that it's a very sacred place. Remember, David wanted to build the temple. He wanted to give God a permanent house. God said no, and so Solomon was tasked with building and constructing the temple. Seven years it took him to make the temple. And everything about the temple, its architecture, its structure, its design, all of it was aimed at helping God's people see how glorious and holy God is. So the materials, the layout, the different rooms, the furniture, All of it was designed to call attention to his significance and how separate he is from us. I love what Dr. MacArthur says about God's holiness. He says, of all the attributes of God, holiness is the one that most uniquely describes him in reality, is a summation of all his other attributes. The word holiness refers to his separateness, his otherness, the fact that he is like any other being. It indicates his complete and infinite perfection. Holiness, MacArthur says, is the attribute of God that binds all the others together. Properly understood, it will revolutionize the quality of our worship. Absent-minded, irreverent worship means that you do not understand the holiness of God. And so the house of God, the temple, was intended to create a sense of awe and wonder and amazement. But it wasn't just a sacred place, it was a sanctified place. Right? Sinful man had to be cautious in the way that they approached God. And so there was lots of rules and regulations for what to do and what not to do. And if you didn't obey, there were severe consequences. But the divisions and restrictions for the Gentiles and and for for women can only go so far, and Jewish men who can only go so far, and the priest who can only go so far, and even the high priest who can only go so far, and only one day out of the year could they go into the Holy of Holies. And even then, they had to do it with extreme caution. You don't trifle with a holy God. And so the temple was a sacred place. It was a sanctified place. But listen, the temple was also a place of great satisfaction and joy. David says this in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked from Yahweh, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. You see, yes, God is transcendent. God is holy, but he absolutely loves. He delights to reveal himself to his creation. And his desire is to satisfy your souls with who he is. Listen to the words of Psalm 84. How lovely are your dwelling places, O Yahweh of hosts! My soul has longed and even fainted for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. And verse 4, How blessed are those who dwell in your 
house. They are ever praising you, Selah. Christian, is that your heart when you come Sunday morning to worship? Do you share this, this longing to be with God and to sing praise to God? Is he your king? Is he your savior? Or do you sometimes get the impression that you're coming to a mortuary? You know, dead people don't say anything. Dead people don't respond. Is that what your worship is like? A.W. Tozer said this. He said, I can safely say, on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God, that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Listen, why would you want to go to heaven when God is there, but you're not really impressed with God down here? Brothers and sisters, each of you, ask yourself, do I really want to be where God is? Do I want to be where God's people are? You know, when I wasn't a Christian, the last place I wanted to be was at church. I don't want to be at church. Because the Lakers, when they were good, they were playing, and I wanted to watch the Lakers. I wanted to watch cartoons on Sunday morning. But when I got saved, oh, it was a different story. I wanted to be at every single church service. I wanted to listen to every pastor on the radio. I wanted to read my Bible. I went to master's and changed my major to Bible. Had no idea what I was going to do with it, but I just, I just wanted to study the Bible. There was a hunger. There was a thirsting. There was a longing to be in God's word, to be with God, and to be with his people. Listen, coming together with the people of God to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords is the greatest thing in the world. Just stop and think about it for a second. We get to do today what we will do for all of eternity, to sing praise to his great name. That is amazing. The psalmist says, Psalm 84.10, For better is a day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would choose to stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. What he's saying is, look, I'd rather be the door boy. And I would just rather go to the door and just keep opening and closing the door. I'd rather be a door boy than a dignitary. Why? Why would anyone choose a lesser station in life? The answer is in the next verse. Psalm 84, 11, For Yahweh God is a sun and shield. He gives grace and glory, and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk blamelessly. Don't you want to be where Yahweh's at? Where there's grace and glory, where there's wisdom and truth, where there's light and peace, where there's rest? That's where the people of God want to be. The other option is, oh, there's full of darkness and there's lies and there's judgment waiting you. It seems like an easy choice. So I say, I'd rather clean the toilets than sit on the throne if I can be in the house of Yahweh. Is that how you think about coming to church to worship? I just can't, I can't wait. I, I want to be with the people of God. I want to sing his praises together. Look, the majority of the world does not think like that. 
If they did, they don't do it anymore. Let me tell you something. I don't blame them. Because what has happened in a lot of churches is they've tried to take the transcendent, omnipotent, powerful God and bring him down to our level and make him just like us. And he is not like us. You know, the clearest indication of this is the State of Theology report that was put out by Ligonier. I mean, if you read it, it's depressing. It says this, that the 2022 survey results for U.S. evangelicals revealed a concerning trend related to the exclusivity and deity of Jesus Christ. The historicity and divine nature of Scripture, objective truth, gender identity, and homosexuality. Some people have said, why do we do the articles? We do the articles because the articles are biblical. And we want to be reminded every single week of what we believe and what the Bible teaches. Because a lot of people, even in the church, don't believe this stuff anymore. 56% of so-called evangelicals think that God accepts all other religions. And you tell me, does that put God's glory on display? Mormons, Islam, it's okay, it doesn't matter. God's going to be pleased. God's going to be happy. You can agree that sex outside of marriage and abortion is wrong, but if the church is wrong about the Savior and about the Scripture and about the way of salvation, we are in a horrible, horrible place. Every time we gather, we are gathering to hear the Word, to understand God's will, to know His works, and then to act appropriately. You know, I think oftentimes we say, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. That's not just using profanity. That is treating God frivolously, falsely, inconsiderately, irreverently. And that is not how we treat the God of the universe. John Piper says this. He says, the greatest hindrance to worship is not that we are a pleasure-seeking people, but that we are willing to settle for such pitiful pleasures. If we're going to truly worship God, we have to see Him, church, for who He truly is. We have to approach Him with godly fear, with solemnity and thoughtfulness and humility and sincerity. And so Solomon, he admonishes to approach God with reverence and awe, to guard our steps as we approach God. Don't trifle with the Holy One. That's the first imperative. And now comes the admonishment. Draw near, he says now, to listen. Point number two, draw near. And how do we do that? To listen with our ear and with our hearts. You know, the greatest commandment, what is it? Love the Lord your God. Come on, let's go. Okay, I'll accept that. You know that comes from Deuteronomy. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, and he quotes Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6 begins with this, Hear, O Israel. Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, and all your might. And this is repeated. It's a repeated refrain as we look through the Pentateuch and the prophets and the Psalms and the Proverbs. 
Listen, listen, listen. Hear, hear, hear. Pay close attention. Give your ear to my words. Over and over again, God reiterates the importance of listening to him. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 10 says this, Remember the day you stood before Yahweh your God at Horeb, when Yahweh said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may cause them to hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Deuteronomy 5.1, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and judgments. Deuteronomy 6.3, Listen and be careful to do it. Deuteronomy 12, 28, be careful to listen to all the words that I am commanding you. Even Jesus, when he steps on the scene, he says over and over again, he who has ears to hear, hear. So drawing near means that we have to listen with our hearts, with our ears, but also with humility, with humility. You don't have to take a class in communications 101 to understand that you can't listen well if you're the one doing all the talking. Wives, is that right? You you cannot listen well if someone is doing all the talking. So sometimes I just have to say, Dom, just shut up and just listen. You don't need an expert in communication to help you understand that when you listen to your spouse or to your kids or to a church member, that your listening validates the worthiness of that person. Let me give you an example. Every week I get phone calls from solicitors and spammers. I hang up on them sometimes. Well, Pastor, shouldn't you share the God? Well, no, I just don't have the time. Sometimes I just don't have the time to talk to a solicitor who wants to sell me on things. And so I either cut that conversation real short or I just hang up because I don't have the time, I don't have the energy, and honestly, I don't have the affection for that particular salesperson. It's a totally different story when my wife wants to talk to me or when my kids have something exciting to share. In those situations, I want to be all ears because there's value and, and worth and, and love and relationship. So I want to be listening. And that expresses not just an eagerness to hear, but expresses love. And it's the same thing when we come to the Word of God. God has something to say, and the question for us this morning is, are you listening? Are you humbling yourself to listen to God? Isaiah 66, 2 says this, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. We should, you and I should care deeply about listening to what God says and make every effort in humility to receive it with joy. So drawing near means that we listen with our hearts, our ears, with humility, but it also means obedience. God sent Isaiah the prophet to deliver this powerful message The message was this, you keep on hearing, but you do not understand. Now, what he's not saying is that you're totally intellectually inept and can't understand the words that are coming from my mouth. He's not saying that. He's saying you are not responding in faith and obedience to the things that you hear. 
And so over and over again, we're reminded of the necessity to not just hear, but to hear so as to obey. Because you and I, we have the propensity to be, give, to be forgetful hearers. And so the command is not just hear, not just listen, but hear and listen so as to obey. Turn with me real quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 5. I want to show you the parallels here from Deuteronomy 5 and Ecclesiastes 5. Moses, recounting the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel, he calls upon them to both hear and do. Look there at verse 32. He says, So you shall be careful to do just as Yahweh your God has commanded you. You should not turn aside to the right or to the left. In all the way which Yahweh your God has commanded, you shall walk that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. You see all the parallels and correlations? We listen, we hear, we walk, we obey. Look, in order for us to walk the right path and obey God, we have to hear him. That's why we sing the song, Speak, O Lord. You're not coming here to actually hear me. You don't, you don't really care about my suggestions and my opinions. You want the Word of God. I've told plenty of you this before, right? It's, it's like the cook is in the kitchen cooking, and my job is just to take the food and just deliver it without messing up, without falling over, without doing a ratatouille and trying to change the recipe. Just bring the Word of God to the people of God. You say, well, what's the consequence then if we don't watch how we walk and if we're not mindful of how we listen? Well, it's there in the text. The consequence is that you will live foolishly. That brings us to point three. Guard your steps as you enter the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. And the two questions that we'll ask here, real simply, is what is the sacrifice of fools? And then how do fools not understand that they're doing evil? So what is the sacrifice of fools? Three times in verse 4, we see the fool is mentioned. And what we learn from these four verses is that the fool doesn't watch how he walks. He doesn't listen, and he speaks foolishly, and so God has no delight in the fool. How do you and I avoid being foolish in our worship? How do we avoid displeasing God? Well, the answer is don't make the sacrifice of fools. And some will say that what Solomon is referring to here is the sacrifices. In Isaiah chapter 1, you remember that God, he says to the prophet, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of fats, of fed cattle, and the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. I take no pleasure when you come to appear before me. Who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is abomination to me, new moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocation. I cannot endure the wickedness in the solemn assembly. My soul hates your new moon festivals and your appointed times. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. And then look at this. Very interestingly, he begins to talk about their words and what they say. Verse 15, 
So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Indeed, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. And then there's the call to repent, to turn, to wash themselves, to do justice. You see, the people of Isaiah's day were rebuked for what we would call empty formalism, thoughtless worship, going through the motions. Listen, I prepared all week. I know what I'm preaching on. I've got all my notes right here. And yet, as we're singing the song, an impulse was to check my social media. That's the pastor. While I was singing songs, I was thinking about other things. Today, preaching Ecclesiastes chapter 5, it is a fight. It is a fight to give yourselves fully and faithfully to worshiping God. Listen, when we think about how the fools act, no fear, no humility, no repentance, no willingness to confess, no willingness to actually obey God, that kind of meaningless worship is insulting to the king of the universe. And it says that they are doing evil. These people are worshiping in ignorance. They don't truly know God. They don't know what God's word says. And so they think that they're worshiping God when they're really not. Church, may this never be us. That Sunday after Sunday and week after week and month after month and decade after decade, we just keep showing up to church and going through the motions. God is not pleased with that kind of worship. You can sing songs but still be very harsh and cruel to your wife. You can sing songs but still be addicted to pornography and have no desire to change. You can sing songs and still keep telling crude jokes and be crass with your language. You can sing songs and just completely ignore your children. Worship just doesn't take place here on a Sunday morning for an hour, an hour and a half. Worship is a lifestyle. And Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is reminding us, guard your steps. Watch your mouth. Don't be a fool because a fool displeases God. You think about all those people in the scriptures from Cain to Saul. Saul thought he was impressing the Lord. And Samuel comes to him and says, Has Yahweh much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Look, the, the key to worshiping Yahweh is listening to his word, listening to his voice, and obeying it. We don't need to create inventive and new ways to worship him. God knows exactly what he's doing and he's given us his word and it's worked for generations, for thousands of years. The heart of proper worship is your heart. The heart of proper worship is your heart. Not just what you do on the outside, 
but what's going on in your very soul. So Solomon knows that we go through the motions of religiosity and we can pray and we can sing and we can give and we can do all the religious stuff. But can I just take you to a warning? Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. As you come to church and as you give to the church and as you pray and as you sing and as you fellowship, you understand that those are not the aim of our gathering. There are countless people who can check all those boxes and they will be in hell. Verse 9. He told this parable, Jesus speaking, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying with these things to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. But he was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the act and the motive matter to God. So listen, verse 1, Ecclesiastes, convicting to my soul. Let me just close with a couple of practical things that you can do with this text. One is to understand that worship is not just what takes place here, but it is a lifestyle. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, we read these words. I love this. Such a helpful statement. The ordinary worship of God includes the reverence and attentive reading of the scriptures, the sound preaching and conscientious hearing of the word in obedience to God with understanding and faith, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, and the proper administration and right receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ. He goes on to say, <clears throat> God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth. Listen to this. In private families daily, privately by individuals daily, and regularly in solemn public gatherings, which are not to be carelessly or willfully neglected or forsaken since God calls us to join other believers in public worship. You walk away from that and you realize you just can't do church on TV. You just can't pick and choose when you want to go to church. You realize, hey, as a leader of the home, as a father, I need to be leading my family in worship every single day. Don't let the pastor do that for you on a Sunday. It is life. How are you preparing? How are you preparing? I was telling Jess that I was going to mention her because uh, I remember when I was at Masters, had a basketball game. We drove up here to San Jose, played San Jose State. 
took them for granted. Um, and usually you go through a pregame ritual. It's your time to get focused. It's your time where you eat a good meal, you get good rest, you get into the locker room, you look at the board, you know your assignments, you communicate to your team their responsibilities. There's a lot of prep work that goes into pregame. You're supposed to be in the layup line, you're stretching, you're getting yourself warm, ready for competition. Well, I didn't do that that day. Just goofing around. Didn't eat a good meal. I was playing horse with my buddy. And I was talking to this really pretty girl in the stands at the beginning of the game. You know what happened? We got pounced on the opening minutes because I was unprepared. My teammates were unprepared because I was unprepared as the captain of the team. And the thing that devastated me as I thought about this was my bad, it wasn't just that we had jumped out to a very bad start, but I set an example for everybody on my team. And the worst part is I dishonored my coach because that is not what he was about. That is not what he taught us. That is not how he wanted us to be successful. Church, how are we preparing to come to meet with God? There's all kinds of things that you can do to prepare your heart. Going to the Word and reading. I love what MacArthur said. He said, if you have a short book, read it every day for 30 days. You don't have to pull out memory cards. The more that you read it, the more that you'll memorize it. Jonathan posts our songs on Slack the night before. Sing those with your family. Sing with your family. Teach your kids what the words are that you're singing. Go to bed early. Get up early. Pray. Pray for the people. Pray for your pastor. I need your prayers to get up here and proclaim the word powerfully and clearly. Pray that we would have an impact on our community, on our peninsula, on the nations. Don't come to worship thoughtlessly. Come as God deserves, with hearts that are full of joy and receptivity and reverence and fear and awe, because Christ is the greatest thing in all the earth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you please search us? Would you know our hearts? Would you try us and know our anxious thoughts? God, would you see if there be any hurtful, harmful way in us and lead us in the way of everlasting? Lord, we confess to you that we don't always guard our steps and we don't always guard our speech when we come to you in worship. And so we beg of you, God, that you would forgive us for the times where we've just trivialized worship and we've reduced it to a trite ritual. Lord, our, our walk and our talk, it matters to you and you want our hearts, not just mere outward observance. So would you please, God, stir in us, motivate us, encourage us, remind us, give us, Lord, the ability to offer our lives as a holy and living sacrifice, acceptable in your sight, the Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.